And when I didn't like myself, I was like, I don't care if I'm hurting my body because this is the only thing I can do to escape my brain. The addictions, the BPD, and my bipolar made it so that I couldn't understand that like I am deserving of happiness. I am deserving of good things. After a long and challenging battle with addiction, Molly has reached a major milestone, one year of sobriety. Throughout their journey, they've discovered a profound truth, the importance of feeling in order to heal. For years, drugs have become a means to suppress their difficult emotions. After making the choice to take back their autonomy and never giving up on that choice, Molly has been able to confront their deepest wounds head on. They were kind enough to share with me their insights, experiences, and realizations that they've gained along the way. And I feel like their journey can really serve as a beacon of hope, reminding us that embarking on a path of sobriety and self-love is so, so possible. Here's Molly. Quiet, not silent. When I was living in Toronto, we met on TikTok, and then we hung out at, like, that queer meetup. <laughs> yeah, the little queer picnic. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. queer picnic was amazing. I hope they do it again this year. Um, Molly just hit their one year sober recently, and I really wanted to bring them on to talk about it and just celebrate this whole journey that they're on. So, do you want to start off maybe telling me a bit about your, like, diagnosis story, Molly? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've had like a lot of different diagnoses over the year. Um, about when I was like 21 years old, I got diagnosed with BPD. Um, and that was through kind of like inpatient. And at the time, addiction and things like that were very, I had them, but I wasn't very self-aware of the things that I was kind of picking up over time. Because I was pretty like late in life for addictions. Mine really started at like 19. And uh, yeah, I got my diagnosis at 21 with BPD. I guess to cope with that, with when I got my diagnosis of BPD, there wasn't a lot of resources for me. Uh, I kind of got the diagnosis inpatient, and then I kind of was left to <laughs> left to my own will. So uh, over time, I developed addictions kind of as a coping method to that because I was struggling with things like PTSD, which I was diagnosed with at seventeen, and things like that on top of my BPD. And then I guess. Only about two years ago, I was diagnosed with, well, first they were hypothesizing that I had bipolar 2, um, but it wasn't until I actually went sober did they actually give me a proper diagnosis because they wanted to make sure it wasn't the substances that were kind of influencing that. But I got my bipolar diagnosis about a year ago when I started going for addiction treatment. And when I did addiction treatment, um, they diagnosed me with polyaddiction use disorder, which is like I had multiple different uh, substances using kind of to cope with the bipolar and the BPD. But yeah, that's a bit of my <laughs> synopsis of um, the diagnoses I've received the last few years. Yeah, sobriety definitely was very beneficial for my BPD and my bipolar as well, especially even identifying those things. Um, most of my life, I wasn't aware I had bipolar until I went sober. Then I realized, oh, there's like an underlying thing here that I've been kind of making worse by using substances. That makes perfect sense. And I've heard that a lot of, like, clinicians and mental health professionals, like, I've heard them say, you need to quit substances and we need to address the substance abuse first before we can treat the other things. I think it says somewhere in the DSM as well, like, there, there are certain diagnoses that you, you can't diagnose unless it's not attributed to any other thing, like this outside thing. Yeah, yeah, that was a big thing. It's like, I had multiple doctors say, kind of push the bipolar thing but they were like but we can't diagnose you because especially with what I was using I was like a stimulant addict and with stimulants mm -hmm. um they can kind of trigger mania episodes even people without bipolar because of just like you're often using stimulants to stay awake and things like that and 
what I didn't know was that I was triggering manic episodes with my substance use, but it was when I went sober and I had a hypomanic episode and I was like, oh, this is a real thing <laughs> that I'm experiencing and not like attributed oh, to my substances. <laughs> it was like three months into my sobriety. I was like, oh, I didn't sleep for three days. <laughs> What's going on here? <laughs> and then I, and then my doctor was like, okay, we can diagnose you. Wow. So when, how did you feel after you got a BPD diagnosis, first of all, and then a bipolar disorder diagnosis after? It was really interesting. Well, with my BPD, that was like most of my life, I knew there was something more than my diagnoses. Like when I was a teenager, I had kind of a list of a bunch of different diagnoses from different psychiatrists I was seeing at the time. I was like lucky enough to like start seeing a therapist around 12, 13. But as I got like generalized anxiety disorder was one of my diagnoses. And then it was major depressive disorder. And it's just kind of those kind of disorders were there, but it felt like there was always something more underlying and when I was 17, I was inpatient uh, very briefly. And they that's when they said I had BPD traits. But it, it was one of those things where like a lot of people don't get diagnosed until they're like over 18 most of the time. So for me, it took a while for me to understand what was going on with me. And even with the BPD thing, I kind of pushed it off. And then it really came down to like one of my friends had BPD in university. And she would kind of talk about her experience. And I just found myself relating a lot to it. Uh, but even then, I didn't seek out a diagnosis. It really just came down to kind of a mental break kind of point of my life where I was in like a really bad relationship and I was struggling in school and I couldn't understand why I couldn't handle life like everyone else around me. And I was actually, I was kind of involuntarily put inpatient through my university when I kind of came to them as a crisis appointment with the therapy. And through that, when I was inpatient at a hospital, they finally gave me the diagnosis after I think about two weeks, me staying there, they gave me the BPD diagnosis. And honestly, it made a lot of sense. It, there was a sense of like freedom there of like, oh my God, my whole life, I've been trying to understand why I can't handle life like the rest of everyone, like why everything feels so heavy and why my emotions are so extreme all the time. And even with my relationships, I was like, why are they always like this? And when I finally got the diagnosis, it was freeing the sense of like, oh, I have a reason behind it. But at the same time, it felt like a huge weight on me of what do I do with this now? <laughs> and it, it was kind of hard too, because especially in Ontario, like I remember I was inpatient, got the diagnosis and I did like an outpatient kind of like hospital thing for a while for about two weeks. And then I was just kind of left to the wind <laughs> and it, it was hard because there's a lot of wait lists and a lot of different things. And but nothing really led anywhere and I didn't have those resources. So I find the hardest part was I got my diagnosis and then it kind of felt like I had nothing there to help me with it. Yeah. Like, what do you do? Yeah. Yeah. I was just like, what do I do now? And unfortunately, like when you're over 18, like a lot of the treatment that is kind of recommended is coming out of pocket unless you're on like a wait list for a group therapy or different groups and things. And even when I did DBT through a wait list, so I finally got into a group DBT, I actually was kicked out of that DBT group for my addictions. Oh, shit. <laughs> Which I like, it depends on certain groups, but like certain DBT groups don't allow if there's underlying addiction issues, which is interesting to me because DBT is actually very beneficial for people that are struggling with addiction. But I remember when I started in the group talking about certain addictions I was having, I was kind of like pulled aside by the people that were running the group. And they were like, this seems like something you should be more focused on. Where at the time, like, I couldn't understand it. I was kind of angry. But I, a part of me understands it now where it was like, I did really need to address those issues to address like the BPD aspect that I, I was struggling with. I find substances definitely elevated the BPD. And it was very hard to recover when... I was constantly doing things that were kind of making it so that my BPD was exacerbated beyond like <laughs> beyond the level it should have been. Um, but yeah, it was it was definitely hard for a while. And even um, treatment wise, I was kind of in and out of treatment for many years. But it really did come down to like I fell into using substances almost entirely to deal with my BPD. And especially with the pandemic, it kind of really heightened that where it was here I have an abundance of time. And at the time I kind of broke down, I quit my job, I dropped out of school. And it was a very low moment for my BPD. And I was in a very toxic relationship that was kind of fueling it as well. And that's when my substance struggles really started kicking up. And I kind of started to be able to identify those issues at that point. 
I find a lot of people with BPD, especially, there is a self-awareness a lot of us do have that we are aware of our issues. It's just hard to know what to do for them. <laughs> so it was like, I was aware I had, I had a lot of substance problems, but it was like, what do I do with this? <laughs> like, where do I go from there? Like, what, how do I get treatment? And it is very hard, especially when you don't have the financial resources to get the treatment that is more geared towards BPD and things like that. But weirdly enough, thankfully with addiction therapy, it's a lot more accessible. <laughs> so thankfully I was able to get into a program about two years ago for my addiction issues. And that kind of really opened up a huge door of helping both my BPD, my bipolar, and like my underlying addiction issues where I was given access to a psychiatrist, therapy, group therapy, um, medication. And like that was the life-changing point for me. It was when I was finally able to access that treatment. But I don't know. I'm really happy no matter what, like where I am now. And the treatment I've done over the last two years has been like life-changing for both my BPD and my bipolar. And even though the bipolar is a very new diagnosis for me, like the medication I went on, which was like actually both beneficial to my BPD and my uh, bipolar, which I was very thankful for. <laughs> I think I remember when you were first diagnosed because you were kind of journaling on TikTok about it. And I noticed it was helping a lot of people with BPD and bipolar, just being able to feel less alone. Yeah, it was like, even like the TikTok thing was like, TikTok kind of started as my own personal diary. I never expected it to go anywhere. <laughs> it was like this thing where I was like, I'm, I'm just venting to the world about what I'm mentally feeling. And I, and I started in a very low point in my life. So it's vastly different to like what my TikTok is now. But it is interesting to see like how much it really did help to have that community where I was like, oh, here are other people experiencing it. Because while I do have a decent amount of friends that have BPD, it still felt very isolating in the sense of like the majority of the world I knew <laughs> didn't understand what my yeah. disorder was. So when I got on TikTok and there's people that had this community, it also gave me hope where I saw people recovering and people doing different treatments. And even with medication, like... I was very anti-medication most of my life because I had very bad experiences with medication. Even like I was on Zoloft when I was younger and I had a very bad reaction to it, which now I can understand it's because I have bipolar. But when I was a yeah. <laughs> yeah, so when I was like a teenager, they put me on like four different SSRIs. Like they kept trying them with me and they always made me feel like I couldn't sleep, I couldn't do these things. And now I can look back and be like, oh, they were triggering hypomania. And I wasn't even able to like communicate that with my doctors because I didn't have the right words to it I didn't even understand what I was yeah. going through and even with Zoloft it was like when I went on Zoloft it had a very negative effect I was in like deep depression episodes and then I was in like these really up impulsive points and I couldn't understand what that impulsivity was and like why I was so energized and <laughs> I don't know on top of the world and now I can like now that I'm reflecting back on those times, I can be like, oh, like SSRIs were triggering hypomania, which they do for a lot of people in bipolar. Some people with bipolar can take antidepressants, but for me, it was a very negative effect. And even me, when I was a teenager, when I got went to the hospital at 17, it was because I went off of Zoloft cold turkey myself, <laughs> which is not oh, smart. Don't, don't recommend do it anyway. Oh, don't no. do it. <laughs> Disclaimer, absolutely do not go cold turkey off any medication. But I was a teenager that... Yeah, I was just a teenager that was very, I don't know, I was very, like, against the treatment I was getting at the time. And I had a doctor that wasn't necessarily listening to my concerns of no matter how much they were upping my medication, it wasn't helping. And it felt very, like, difficult to, like, not have a doctor that was listening to me when I was saying this medication's making me worse. So I, like, cold turkey it when I was 17, <laughs> worst idea ever. And it really did kind of pushed me into I fell into like a deep deep depression and mixed with like hypomania it was like my first mix episode and Ooh. yeah and it was a very extreme experience so I had that negative look on medications and I was very like I'm never going on medications again and I didn't for like a long time I refused medications and occasionally I would have medications if I was like inpatient they would give me like benzos and things which a lot of kind of inpatient psych ward kind of things often overprescribe that or overgive it and that was an issue for me was when I was inpatient I would often be given benzos even though I had underlying addiction issues so did they know that in some instances yeah like in the beginning no I think it really did start it when I started getting prescribed it when I was inpatient it made me kind of want to seek it out when I left the hospital 
because I was like, oh, this is like an instant release. And for like, it was one of those feelings where it was like, oh, for the first time I feel calm in my life. And I kind of kept seeking out that feeling and that kind of started the addiction issues. When I first started getting addiction treatment, I was a registered addict. I had on, on file that I was a benzo addict, that I had a stimulant addict, etc. I actually went to a emergency. It wasn't just like any other hospital. It was specifically for mental health crises. And I told them it was in a very low point of my life. I was basically like, I don't want to live. And even though I went to this hospital also for addiction treatment, they gave me benzos <laughs> to calm down. Wow. Okay, yeah. So they so- did know... Yeah, yeah. Wow. So there is, like, I find issues with that where it's, like, you, even though it's on file there, you know I have these things, and they're still willing to give it to them. I find it's, like, a lot of times in emergency kind of situations, they rather calm that person down so they can get them out of there rather than want to fully impatient them. So it wasn't until I went actually sober. um, I was about three months sober. um, I got my bipolar to diagnosis officially and then they were like we want to put you on quetiapine they basically were like we're going to give you a week you can think about if you want to go on this medication if you don't we can look into other routes and I was like oh this is like (laughs) this is maybe what I need and I did it I took it and it was definitely like an adjustment um antipsychotics definitely have that kind of drowsy effect when you first start them but after like three months I felt like a huge change in like everything it's like I don't know how to explain it, but I like took the edge off life. Whereas like that edge I had with my BPD, where it was like I was constantly either like paranoid or anxious or tense. It, it very much took that off of my shoulders. I just found I wasn't like overthinking as much. I wasn't like, I don't know, letting myself spiral into negative emotions as much. It kind of like helped me be more balanced as a person. And that kind of helped me like even more address the issues that I had, you know? So yeah, I don't know. Quetiapine has definitely been life-changing for me. Like I'm on a very low dosage right now, but it's like kind of perfect for me where it it doesn't make me feel like out of it during the day, but it like makes me feel stable. So yeah, it's been really good. (laughs) I love that. That's how I feel on Zoloft. Like I've tried so many different antidepressants and medications over the last 28 now, like eight years. And yeah, Zoloft, I, kind of the same journey. I was kind of put off by medication, wasn't sure because so many didn't work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people have like horror stories about Zoloft, right? And I was like, well, honestly, like, what do I have to lose? And for a while I was doing fine off of meds, but I, I just find that once you find the right medication, it, it definitely smooths out your baseline. Yeah, for sure. Like, I find it it is such a personal thing. Like, what works for someone else might not work for another person, but it's, like, when you find the right one. And that's why, like, I do urge people to, like, don't just give up because a few medications didn't work. Like, there could be one out there. Like, obviously, medication is not for everyone, but yeah, it definitely is a very beneficial thing. When you find something that works, it, like, changes the game. (laughs) When you can, like, be more balanced or, like, even taking a little bit of that stress off of you is is definitely like a huge impact on your mental health what part of your bpd did you find was hardest to deal with you mentioned like paranoia and anxiety and overthinking like do you think that those were the hardest parts of it or were there other really really tough stuff too My BPD was very, like, I often, depression was my main emotion, I think. I was often, like, a person in a low period. I had a lot of rage um, for the world, I guess, to say. Um, Because of my life experience, I was always angry at myself. And there was a lot of self-hatred. I think, honestly, that was maybe one of the biggest aspects of my BPD was a lot of depression and hatred towards myself. I find relationships were one of the most, like dangerous kind of experiences with BPD was um, because I was kind of raised in a very abusive kind of household and with abuse, like, and abuse is what I knew. And especially with my BPD, I often like sought out relationships that kind of brought me that chaos. It was like I sought it out and I wanted chaos in my life. And the people I often dated kind of were, it was the love I knew is like the best way I knew to explain it. So I often would get into relationships that were very toxic, very chaotic, very unhealthy, but I felt comfortable in those. And like, 
to be able to kind of react at the most extremes. And it really did bring out that anger aspect of like constantly fighting, constantly yelling, like, and that like lowness of just like having someone that doesn't treat you right. And me kind of constantly seeking out their approval. And it was kind of breaking that. It was like the favorite person thing really wrapped me probably like 15 years. I was experiencing different long-term relationships that were very unhealthy. And I didn't have an ability to let people go. I could not let go of someone, no matter what, even if they didn't want me in their life, it was so difficult for me to like leave them alone, (laughs) to say the best. Like I was the, you know, the crazy ex that would like email them if they blocked me (laughs) and go beyond um, what I should have to try and keep these people that were already not good for me in my life. And I think that was the big aspect was like, I let a lot of people treat me badly because I didn't want to lose people. And it's what I knew. And I think that aspect was very heavy. And even like the impulsivity aspect was a huge thing where I think that's where the substances kind of came in, where it was like, I had that need to be impulsive. And it was like that self-destructive part of me that was like, anytime things went bad in my life, my main reaction was self-destruct, do something incredibly impulsive and dangerous, or completely isolate myself from everyone. And it was like a toss-up of the three, and all of them had very dangerous impacts on like my life. Sobriety has been the only thing that's really offered a lot of relief from what I was experiencing, because I got a lot more clarity about my thinking and my thought process when I took the substances out and was able to finally be like, oh, like what I'm doing, the behaviors I'm acting, I need to work on these things. Uh, I find the biggest thing for BPD was truly talking about the trauma aspects. It's like, why do I act this way? Why are my actions like this? And when I could like kind of unpack certain things like people pleasing, I didn't even realize was an issue until like the last year. (laughs) But that's like my big aspect I'm working on now, where it's like my constant need to help people and be there for people before myself was a fault of mine as well. Even like things like suicidal ideation, I find that really impacted me when I was a teenager. I don't know what it is. I think like there is something with age that like the older I got, the easier it got to deal with BPD. It sounds like there's not just one thing in particular that had you turning to drugs and alcohol, but do you, would you say that a big part of your addiction was fueled by that self-hatred? Like, do you find, did you ever feel like it was a, like, you're kind of punishing yourself? Oh, 100%. Even, like, for me, it was, like, I had this, basically, I had a family of addicts, you know? It was very known to me that I would have addiction. And even most of my, like, teen years, I was, like, very against drugs. I was, like, I'm never going to do drugs. I know how it impacted my family. Like, this is not something I would do for myself. I knew myself, if I ever did these things, there would be that that kind of hook on it. And it was like, I was 19 years old. I was in the worst relationship of my life. Um, And especially when you're in kind of a long-term abusive relationship, it really does destroy your self-image. It destroys your idea of yourself. And I really did feel like a shell of who I was. You know, I felt very low and I felt like in general, I felt like I didn't deserve to be on the earth. It was just kind of like a fuck it moment where it was, I was just so done with the world. I remember I was just had a horrible argument with like the guy I was seeing at the time. And like he, things got physical between me and him. And then I went to a party after and someone offered me substances and I thought in my brain, what do I have to lose? And I was like, anything can be better than this. And I think that was the struggle is like substances, I think offer something for someone that is mentally struggling, which is an escape. And that's what I really wanted. I wanted to be able to escape the life I was living uh, because I didn't know a way out. And I didn't know at the time that I could leave this relationship. And even at the time he was using substances and I wasn't. So there's that added aspect. If if I got into them, he basically constantly encouraged me to use as well once I started using myself. Yeah. So it it was difficult because I myself never touched substances, but he was started using it. He would constantly bring home alcohol. He would constantly encourage us to get wasted every single night and when I started using stimulants like when I did cocaine like it it was like an instant hook and like because my dad was a stimulant addict I knew myself like it would be like that for me and it became hard to like ignore that part of my brain that was like 
oh, but I'm more social. I'm more up. I feel happier when I'm on it. Like, because I, I didn't know that feeling, you know, I, I didn't have that ability at the time to like feel any form of happiness. So what I felt through substances, I was like, this is what happiness is, even though now I can reflect and be like, no, that's just like a sense of euphoria. It kind of pushed everything further because it was like once you open the door of like, I'll do this one hard drug, it opens up the door of like, oh, I can do anything. Even with the pandemic, that was the kind of catalyst of it all was like I at that point was doing a few different substances like I was abusing Vivance and Adderall for like school and then on top of that I was using cocaine recreationally and I was using benzos that my friends would have prescribed I'd ask them for theirs and it really came down to like having access to it and the pandemic kind of created access where it was I got in a relationship with someone that like constantly used and was an addict themselves. And that kind of opened up the door to like a million other substances for me to be have constant access to. And I think it really did come down to that. It was like when I was at my mentally lowest and when I didn't like myself, I was like, I don't care if I'm hurting my body because this is the only thing I can do to escape my brain. I know it's interesting to reflect on now because I can now know that that's so far from the truth of like, if anything, it made everything worse. <laughs> but mm-hmm. it, I think in the beginning for a lot of addicts, that's what it is. It really is that aspect of like, you don't have that access to other forms of treatment. So you seek out things that are available to you. And substances were there when I didn't have the ability to get treatment. Weird way to explain it, but I think substances hold a purpose for people that are struggling with trauma. A lot like a majority of addicts, it is that kind of trauma aspect that kind of pushes people to it for that escape and for that kind of relief. And when you don't have anything else there and that's there, it often becomes that. And then it becomes hard because substances, it makes everything worse in the sense you can't see it in the beginning where you're like, it helps in the beginning. But then as time goes on, it makes your mental health worse. You experience so much more trauma through using substances. Your mental health issues or will be more extreme. And even with my bipolar, like that's where I really became to identify that I had it was using substances and then realizing I was like, even when I wasn't on them, I couldn't shake the up feeling or the down feeling, unlike my other friends. And it was really pushing those issues to be more and more worse than I should have been. There's <laughs> just a whole vicious cycle. Yeah, it's definitely hard to get out of the cycle once you're in it because. Yeah. It's like what you know from about 19 to like 23. (laughs) That was like my life. It was like, that's how I found release. And that's what I thought happiness was. What I thought joy was, was doing these things. I was like, oh, I'm more social on it. I'm more able to like function on these things. And I kept like convincing myself I couldn't function without them. When in reality, I couldn't function without them because I had an addiction. And that must have just been unbelievably hard to finally come to that point where you're like, I have to stop. I have to stop because this is this is not a fix anymore. This is making everything worse. And now I have to clean everything up and I have to ask for help, right? Yeah, that was like, that's the interesting thing too. It's like, I, for a while, knew I needed help. Even when I was about 21 years old, I like could admit to myself I was an addict. But it did take a while for me to actually want to do something about it. While TikTok can have really beneficial aspects of creating a community, if you end up on like the wrong sides of TikTok, kind of the, you know what I mean? Like the BPD bad version of where it's like encouraging, like I have no help. There's no treatment for me. No medication can help. Like all the stigma or like misinformation that goes around about no medication helps BPD. We're doomed for life. Like we'll die at 27. All these things that are like inherently false. Not real. Not real at all. I hate I hate hopeless BPD TikTok. Oh <laughs> yeah, my but god. When I was like 21 and struggling with addiction and on TikTok for the first time, like it really did impact me where I was like, I, f- and before I ended up on treatment side of the BPD TikTok, I was on like the, I'm helpless. Like this yeah. is the worst, most painful, horrible disorder. There's no going back. There's no help. And I had that kind of brain, like that thought process in my brain. And I think BPD encourages that in the same way where it's like, it wants you to believe that you're not going to be better. You know, like it, the like negative thoughts can be just spiral out of control. And especially when you're reading and getting all this information, that's like, 
you you can never there's no cure for BPD. I hate that statement because it's like sure there's no cure for BPD, but there's no cure for depression or anxiety or PTSD or bipolar disorder. It's about treatment and it's about like finding ways to manage it and it's not a death sentence in any form. <laughs> it really just did take really myself. It really took myself didn't even, I couldn't even say it was when I hit my lowest. It's like I had to hit my lowest at least like five times. <laughs> and then like it, it finally clicked at me. Like it was a lot of my lowest moments. And even my sobriety, like sobriety is never clean. Like recovering is never clean. There's no like clean cut and dry. I went sober and that's it. Like I didn't talk about it too much even on my TikTok, but my recovery journey was truly like multiple years like there was years I was like about two years ago was when I first was like I need to go sober and I would go sober for a few days or like I I try to practice like managing it or I would like try and cut down and something bad would happen in my life and then I didn't have like that therapy aspect or anything I could turn to or the healthy coping mechanism so when my life didn't go well I would relapse. And I was kind of like that, you know, chronic relapser where it was like every, I would go sober for a week and then relapse for two and then go sober for a week, relapse for two. And I even like hit a month at one point, um, not sober, sober, but from off of substances. I was still drinking and things like that, but I saw hope and then I spiraled again. And like, now I can be like, I'm a year sober, which is like crazy to say. But even like before that point, I remember I posted a TikTok. Um, it was like a voice note I sent to my friend. It was talking about alcohol and partying where I was like kind of explaining that the group of friends I had at the time, I was like drinking my work for them, but I'm like, I can't do this anymore. And I remember I posted on TikTok as kind of like a vulnerability moment of kind of admitting to the world I had an addiction issue, but also kind of as a message to myself, like the whole video was like me listening to this voice note. And even then, right after I filmed that, I was like, I'm going sober. And then I relapsed three days later. And I didn't want to let go. I didn't want to let go of this thing that's like, in a weird way, kept me alive for the last four years. You know, I was like, I don't want to let this go. I don't know how to survive without this. Um, and it caused me to kind of automatically relapse substances I hadn't do done for months. So it was a really, really bad relapse. And I remember... It was like three days I was going. And then I remember I called my ex who like lived like multiple cities away at the time, like an hour and a half away. I was just crying. I said, I need you to save me. I was at my friend's and like I snuck off to the bathroom and I was like, I need you to pick me up. I need to get out of here because like the guilt overtook me. It was like, what am I doing? And I was like, I just said I was going to get better. And a week goes by and here I am again. I remember he picked me up. I was, I remember I was like yelling at him on the phone. Like me and him weren't even good at the time, but I was like, I need you to help me. He drove me an hour and a half to where he lived at the time. I remember being in his bedroom and just so angry at the world. And at that point, cause I just wanted no access to substances. And I felt so low and so awful. And also just seeing someone watch me like that it really like, I was like, wow, like, what am I doing? And I'm like, I'm hurting everyone around me. I'm hurting the people in my life. I am hurting myself. I just remember talking with him that night and he was, he's, he was a struggling addict himself. Like he was a very like bad opiate addict and we both wanted to be better. And that was the thing. We were both trying to recover and we couldn't, but something just clicked in me when I was like, why am I here at my ex's house who I'm not necessarily good with? I use majority of my addiction with like it was someone that if anything encouraged it I'm like why am I here I'm like why am I withdrawing off all these substances feeling horrible feeling like I was gonna die and then I was like I I'm done <laughs> I don't know something clicked and I was like it's it's time to do something better because this isn't working anymore like substances just stopped working what I in the beginning what I used them for it just stopped having that effect when I did them I didn't feel good at all it was to like maintain level-headedness it wasn't even to feel good anymore it was like if I don't do these I feel horrible and then something switched and that day I said I want to go sober and that was the last day I did substances <laughs> um and then when I went home I immediately called 
like CAMH, I remember. I like immediately called, which is like a, I guess if people don't know, it's like a mental health hospital. Thank God they have a self-refer line. <laughs> I self-referred myself to addiction therapy and two days later I came in and I was like, I wanna go sober. And I went there, they did a bunch of tests. They basically talked to me about what I want and I basically was already there. Like I already was doing treatment for a whole year and then I just stopped during treatment when I stopped wanting to get help and I'm back again. <laughs> They're like, oh, you're back. And I'm like, yeah. And before I was practicing kind of trying to mediate and trying to like control how much I was using. But basically when I came in, I was like, I wanna go completely abstinent. I wanted to explore every option because I was like, I need this one to work. I need this to stick. And I remember I went for the first time to an AA meeting. Um, which it wasn't for me, <laughs> but it was still something that was an important experience and I got the, like the little chip, but I went there too. And I just remember it was like two days sober. I went there and it was just kind of surrounded by a bunch of people that were addicts themselves. And that kind of really changed the game of like having a community of people wanting to be better. Cause like most of my life I was surrounded by people that were addicts, but didn't care to do anything about it. You know, I was I was truly like the first of the people that I was using with to go sober. I don't know what happened, but there's something clicked in my brain and I never looked back from then. I went to therapy like three times a week. <laughs> I got a psychiatrist, I did group therapy, I did individual therapy, I did medication. And I just kept fighting. I was like, there's no way I can go back to that. And Every week that passed by that I didn't use um, felt like an accomplishment. And that was a big thing too, was TikTok really did become the community where I started documenting that entirely. I gained a following kind of based off this sobriety experience, which added this like added pressure of like, people are watching me and they wanna see me recover. And it really inspired me to see other people's stories and their stories really did help me and having that community and people just cheering me on and saying like we like every time I would hit like in the beginning, I remember I would post like every small milestone and then the milestones got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I was like, I'm actually doing this. And I think it was like the three month mark. I felt a huge mental difference. I remember by six months, I was like, I have actually never felt this mentally good in my life. And I don't know. Yeah. At every month I didn't use every month I stayed sober, it got better. And I was like, wow, this is actually working for me. Never go back is like my mentality right now. It's like, I find things like triggers and things like the urge to use um, has almost completely gone away um, since I, where I am at right now. And I'm so thankful for that. But it took a long time to get to a point where I was like, I don't ever want to go back to that life. And yeah, it's it's been an amazing experience, truly. And it was like the most important thing for like every aspect of my mental health. And even now it's like, I can really focus on the BPD thing. I can focus on the bipolar thing and being able to do that and being able to like now not just do treatment for my addictions, but now actually just do treatment to work through my trauma, to work through my, I don't know, experiences with BPD. That has been so life-changing to finally get to a point where it's like substance abuse isn't the main problem. And now I can focus on actually healing. That is honestly incredible. I am, for what it's worth, I am so fucking proud of you, dude. <laughs> Thank you. Like, you're, that is some winner shit. <laughs> Thank you. I'm literally crying. Oh. I'm honestly, like, at one point I was like, oh my god, oh my god. <laughs> you just are so resilient, and you have been through so much. How old are you now, Molly? Um, I'm 24, about to turn 25 in about two months, yeah. Like, when you think about it, three years is not a whole lot of time, and you have come so far. And I just think it's really important to highlight that. Like you have, Thank you. you have come so, so, so far. You've really learned about yourself. You've literally been able to pull yourself out of the depths of hell. <laughs> Truly. <laughs> it Truly. Has, yeah. And yeah. it has not been a perfect journey and no journey is, but you know, you're, you're killing it. You're killing it. That is some winner shit. 
Yeah, it's just, it is crazy. It is like, it felt like my life, a lot of my life was very hellish, you know? And about like even a year ago, I thought I like lost the ability to have joy. Like truly it was something that I thought I lost completely. So it was like, I abused substances for so long. I was like, there's no life beyond this. I can't be happy. There's no way to be happy. All I have is this. And it's like, now I can look back on that and be like, after a year sober, I'm like, I have found happiness again. Like I find joy in life again. And so many things overshadowed that. It was the addictions, the BPD and my bipolar made it so that I couldn't understand that like I am deserving of happiness. I am deserving of good things, you know? And it really took learning that, like learning to not hate myself anymore. <laughs> it's learning to like grow out of that. And it's it's been amazing. Like I would never change my journey now. I I used to regret a lot of my life, but at this point I'm like, I needed to experience what I experienced. And even though it was so much trauma and so much pain I experienced for those years, I know it made me the person I am right now. And I'm really thankful that I was able to get out of that. <laughs> it blows my mind. You know, I really like a year ago, if you told me I was going to go sober and I was going to actually do it, I wouldn't have believed you, you know, but it's like, now I did it. <laughs> and I, I'm like, damn, I actually did it. <laughs> yeah. And you're still, you're still doing it. Like you're, you've made so many good changes to your life. Like you mentioned that TikTok has been a source of kind of accountability for you, but not in a not in a shitty way. Like there have been a lot of people that have encouraged you. You've gathered a community and and you've healed through community. You've healed through people encouraging you, people cheering you on like myself, and people with similar stories as you. Like you guys all showing each other that that this is so doable, that you can definitely recover and cultivate a really good life for yourself that you're happy with. Oh, absolutely. I think commu community is like truly the aspect I think mental health needs to focus on. Like community is so integral to recovery. And definitely like TikTok helped me so much. And even like finding my people, you know, like even I remember it was crazy, like even recently, like I kind of reconnected with someone who the first time I used substances was with her. And she is over a year sober. <laughs> and that was like mind blowing to me. I was like, you also did it. And she had BPD as well and bipolar. So I was like, damn, we're out here and we're actually oh doing my God, it. Twinsies. <laughs> Literally, I was like, sorry. <laughs> Literally, oh, was that. I was like, here's my like mental illness twin and you fucking did it too. And um, thankfully, I even have my friend Six, who's like nine years sober off of alcohol and people like that. And like, they fucking cheered me on. And my friends were like such a huge support. And like, I'm so thankful for many different aspects of community, whether it was through group therapy, whether it's through TikTok, whether it's through my friend group, like it was about finding the right people for sure. And when I had people that were supporting me and wanting me to be good instead of people that were encouraging my bad behavior that was like the biggest aspect that kept me going and definitely accountability. I think I, I held myself accountable to like who I was. And I was like, I made myself not forget. Like every time I thought about relapsing, I was like, think about the worst aspects, the worst things you did, the worst experiences you had. And then that served as a reminder to be like, I don't want to go back there ever again. Molly, I really appreciate you coming on here and telling your story because that even just telling your story takes a lot of courage to be vulnerable with me. I just think that it's really important for people to hear how how possible recovery is, how how within your reach it is, like you as in other people and like you are living proof of that. Oh. <laughs> what did you do for your one year sober? Um, my one year sober. I wish I did more, but honestly, like I didn't plan much. And um, my friends actually planned a little surprise party for me, which is very cute. Um, like my friends got me like, so basically that day I was like out filming TikToks with my friend because she was like, oh, let's film stuff for your one year sober. And uh, we kind of went back to my house um, and like my roommate and like a few of my friends, like, I guess, decorated the whole house and like had a little surprise party for me. Which was, like, also so heartwarming that they planned that for me. That's amazing. Yeah. 
I just had like a cake and balloons and like I just had good conversations with my friends about my experience and yeah it was really like wholesome and nice and it is weird like when you're celebrating sobriety it's like what do you do because <laughs> even like the idea of celebrating There's tons of stuff yeah yeah but even like from even the beginning when I was celebrating milestones I felt like I couldn't celebrate it because my idea of celebration was <laughs> you know to use substances so I was like okay I can't celebrate anything like I remember I didn't even celebrate my birthday when I went sober um, because I kind of had to kind of reject myself from that and now I'm like the opposite where it's like I can enjoy those things again without having that tie to it so it felt good to celebrate it and I, I would like to say like in general like anyone that is looking for or like doesn't think they can recover like recovery is always possible like there is always a way out like no matter how low it gets, well, recovery is never linear and it's a long journey for a lot of people. And even for me, like I am not fully recovered from every mental issue I have, but I am so much better than I was before. And if you like two years ago, I truly believed I couldn't recover. And like, I can say now that like so much of my, like even my, my BPD, a lot of the symptoms that I used to have are in remission and my bipolar is a lot easier managed and I have less episodes and I'm sober. And like, that is a wild and amazing thing that I'm like so happy I have found <laughs> a way to manage. And I think that's the big aspect is like, don't believe that you can recover. You know, everyone can. <laughs> it's a different, different journey for everyone, for sure. No recovery is perfect. There is a misconception where it's just like, you don't just go sober no, and then that's it. Never. And then it's like so freaking easy. Like Sobriety is never easy. No, sobriety is not a one hit wonder. You know, you don't just do it once mm -mm. and then you're good. But like, yeah, for me, it was like year, like it was like, I knew I would, like I said, like at 21 years old, I could identify I was an addict and it took like still three years for me to do something about it. <laughs> and a lot of, a lot of hit and misses, you know? And there's so many routes to recovery as well. Like, you know what I mean? Like I talk about like Cali sober and things like that. And even now, like I've, I've definitely separated myself a bit from that and that like, I'm trying to actually cut out cannabis right now completely, mm. but nice. it's a journey too. Um, I mean, for me, I think it served as like kind of like a harm reduction thing. And it was something that like very much benefited me and that it helped me not relapse. Yeah. I don't know. There's definitely so many different aspects of recovery and, um, there's no cut and dry. And even abstinence is not necessarily for everyone. There's definitely multiple different routes to recovery with addiction. But abstinence definitely was the route for me. <laughs> and um, I'm really glad. But yeah, sobriety, it's not an easy thing. I will say that. Like there was even like, I remember when my cat died, like that was, I think, like the closest I got to a relapse. And yeah, it, it, it was definitely hard. It was like, yeah, so it was like, the, here's this animal that like kept me going for most of my life. It was often like in my lowest moments, it's like when I didn't want to live, I was like, but I have to take care of this little pet <laughs> that I love so deeply. Yeah. And uh, yeah. when she passed away, when I was about six months sober, I had to put her down because she had a lot of health issues. It definitely broke something in me where I like really wanted to relapse and instead of doing that I like kind of very much isolated myself in the world and I remember people being very scared I was and then I just thought of like this animal kept me alive for so long this like I loved her so deeply um and I'm experiencing grief and thankfully at the time I had therapy and I had a psychiatrist I was seeing very frequently and I was able to kind of, in my mind, I was like, I have ran from my emotions all of my life and I have to feel them. And that was a huge part of recovery too, is the key to me not relapsing was being like, I need to feel what I feel. And it was like, substances were, I don't want to feel this, so I'm going to do this. And that was the big thing of recovery was like, so many heavy emotions I've been avoiding my whole life. And now, now I realize I'm like, feeling emotions is so integral and important. It's like, when I need to cry, I cry <laughs> and I'll cry hard and I'll listen to my sad music and I'll feel what I'm feeling. When I'm angry, I need to express that and talk about it. And I think that was the biggest thing. It's like, I can't hold in what I feel anymore. If I need to grieve, I need to grieve. If I need to cry, I need to cry. And like when I was able to experience these emotions and in a way that wasn't destructive, but instead were helpful, 
Uh, and I was able to kind of develop those skills through therapy and through just my own self-learning. I don't know. It became a lot easier. It's like when I could deal with my emotions and learn to deal with them sober, I was like, oh, I can do this. And when I was grieving my cat and when I was kind of things got easier with the grief, then I was like, oh, I actually can do this. And I'm so thankful in that moment. I didn't realize. <laughs> That's amazing. Molly, I I really want to thank you again. And it's kind of late in Toronto. So <laughs> I want to let you get back to your evening. No worries. But before we go, where can people find you? All my social medias are Damage X Dolly, <laughs> as my little student and name. Um, even <laughs> it was so funny. My group chat name for my sober party was Damage X Dolly, but less damaged. <laughs> <laughs> like a sewed up Dolly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, Perfect. Yeah. My Instagram, my TikTok, uh, where you can find me. It's same name. Um, and thank you so much for having me. I'm so thankful you asked me to come on here. Yeah, you're a fucking winner. Happy one year. Thank Great you job. so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right, peace out. Incredible. Keep going and keep growing, Molly. Honestly, flawless. Wow. We are reaching the end of the first season of Quiet Not Silent. And I wanted to give you a heads up before the last episode because I don't want to just release the last episode and then just like mic drop and leave you hanging for a few months while season two enters production. So this season will have two more episodes and I want to keep them a bit of a surprise for you. I think you're really going to find some value in them though. So I'm really excited for you to listen. Stay tuned. Peace out. Quiet, not silent. We can create a perfect world in our heads.